This is a Strategist, episode 1001. My name is Zane Veltry. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Guys, I'm back and I need to ask you, um, why did you not record more episodes while I was away? Um, I, I feel like I feel like you used the excuse that I used, which was, uh, just to be clear, the passing away of my father. You guys now use that as an, as an excuse to not record any episodes. Carter, what was going on here? Well, what's going on? You can't use that as cloud cover. Only I have that excuse. Oh, Corey and I were shaken up. I care for you like a brother. Okay. Okay. Well, now you made it weird. This, this, this is soul. a weird energy yeah, we're bringing yeah, to the start really of this uh, show. Uh, by the way, I have to say, yeah. uh, uh, yeah. thank you for that. We, lo- we that love it. you and your family, brother. We always thank have. You, yeah. you know, honestly, you know show, that. Thank you to both of you for the very kind words on the podcast. Thanks to Corey for uh, actually attending the, the funeral. Uh, it was very sudden and um, you never get enough time. And so, yeah, still processing it. But yeah, yeah that's well, what it is. And take I would the time you need, brother. It is what it is. Um, but uh, don't fuck up the intro again, okay? I won't like fuck was, it up. You know what? Shit. Because there's a certain thing that, okay. g- that gave my dad energy. So in tribute to him, let's talk about it. Carter, uh, the Green Party. You know, he loved talking about the Green Party. He <laughs> saw so much hope for the Green Party. Some may even say that, you know, he, he left at the right time because he doesn't want to know yeah. what happened with the Green Party uh, this week, Carter, because we've talked about the Green Party a lot. We've had Anime Paul. Uh, of course, they they uh, build her as the uh, the leader that would make a breakthrough, and then of course, as soon as she didn't make that breakthrough, they well by starving her of any resources uh, or any sort of campaign strategy, uh, they mm-hmm. they turn on her. Uh, Elizabeth May said, "Listen, I, I don't want anything to do with it." Uh, she now is proposed to be a co leader of the party, uh, and now we've got uh, some other drama happening in the Green Party. Stephen Carter. Uh, I'll save the Green Party stuff for our, our, our final uh, sort of segment or over under in our lightning round. Uh, but just just quickly, um, your your hot take on the Green Party as it stands right now, a, a hot topic on this podcast and one that I don't want to uh, just shelve simply till the end, although that is when we'll discuss most of it. Uh, a steaming pile of shit, Zane. Um, they are a steaming pile of shit at this stage. And it bugs me because, uh, you know, Corey's indicated in the past that uh, this was going to happen, and I was pissed off. I, I, there was no way I, could, I thought it was going to happen. You know what? That, what you that is that what is interesting. You, you are referencing. Right I'm wrong again. Oh, okay. okay, so I, I wanted to save this till the end, but Carter, you've you've forced my hand. Um, Corey, you oh fuck, did I screw it up again? On episode thousand, we did we did talk about this. We did talk about the Green Party. There was an extensive conversation. Uh, we rarely bring up clips uh, and proof of 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 predictions, but Corey, do you have something for us here? On the Green Party, because there is a reason I talked about it. Of course he does. It's his prediction. Fucking fucking useless. I knew this. It's his fucking prediction. He's got it. Okay, Corey. Yeah. Yeah. When when I predict something correctly, you can bet it's going to be on the board. Oh, my God. He's got too much time. Corey, go ahead. Play play it for us. Sure. (laughs) He doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. He has nothing. This show's a fucking disaster, Carter. He doesn't doesn't even have the clip. This is going to be the best show. This is the best show we've ever done. Was my dad the glue that kind of kept this thing together? Well, Can I just say, together, was he? Was his presence just? He was. And his fandom he was. for the podcast keeping this together. This is the only reason we did this. Oh my god, Corey, do you want to try that again? Or did, I don't or, think no, he does. I don't think he does. We're going to move it on. You know what? We're going to move it on to Carter. We're going to move it on to 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 just some smaller news. Uh, some news that didn't make any headlines. We're going to move it on to our first segment. Our first segment. King Pierre the Second, that is correct. Stephen uh, Carter, Pierre Polyevra, over the weekend at the Shaw Convention Center in in Ottawa, has taken the reins of the Conservative Party. Huge victory, Carter. 
I, th- I think there's no other oh. way to put it. Um, we have Pierre Polyever obviously getting a certain percentage of the vote. We can discuss that in a second here. Uh, but the stat I want to focus on, Carter, may not be the one you want to focus on because you'll probably get back into your prediction game. Uh, but, no, Car- Carter, the stat I want to focus on, 330 out of the 338 writings going to Pierre Polyever. Have we seen anything like this before? Start here for us in terms of perhaps a bit of campaign history or, or how to uh, analyze the dominance that, that the Polyev campaign showed here. And then we'll get into some of the strategy questions going forward. Off the top of my head, and I didn't do any research into this, but off the top of my head, I can think of only one person who had this kind of dominance, and that's uh, Justin Trudeau in the Liberal Party and uh, the dominance that he brought forward. I, I think that he would have won a similar number of seats against or uh, of ridings against Martha Hall Finley. One would think, given that I worked on Martha's campaign, that I would remember it better, but I have compartmentalized that sucker away. Um, <laughs> so... You know, the I wonder why Kirk. the truth I is, why. you know, I mean, Pierre did it. Uh, Justin's done it. They're both they're both juggernauts. Um, uh, the difference is that Pierre's, you know, ascension is happening now. And uh, Justin's happened, what, uh, eight years ago now, seven or eight years ago. Like it, it, It's a long time. So it's a very long time into in the political environment. Corey, what sticks out to you in, in the Polyev victory? Is it the margin of victory? Is it, as I mentioned, the seats right now, uh, or the ridings, I should say? Um, not the seats, the ridings that he had sheer dominance over. Is it the charade number and how low it was, uh, winning only eight out of the 330? What kind of sticks out to you when you see um, the results and now the data from uh, Saturday's uh, results? It's hard not to just be awed a bit by that top line number. Carter's right. It's it's kind of not usually seen in a contest that is seen as competitive. Obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, we can say this was never a particularly competitive race. And we talked a bit about this as it was going on. We thought that the membership as it existed supported Pierre Polyev. Pierre Polyev sold the most memberships. This is in some ways not shocking, but the scope of it is. The idea that Jean Charest, who was seen as a credible candidate by many, including myself, not that I thought he was going to win per se this weekend, only got 16% of the points. And as you mentioned, only got the majority or plurality of the points in eight of the 338 ridings is is pretty pretty shocking. And so the, the overwhelming victory doesn't leave Pierre Polyev's critics a lot of places to go. There's not a mm. lot of natural homes. Any talk of a moderate conservative alternative, I think, has to be perceived as dev. Not not just because of how uh, Charest has acted since and said we're going to stay a conservative and we all got to stick together, uh, but also because, like, what would you do with that? You've got the points that represent 15% of the writings. Because, you know, I'll tell you something. Lewis, at 9% of the points, mm-hmm. that's... That's not a moderate solution. Atchison got 1%. So you throw yeah. the 1% on the 15% or 16%, you're at 17% of that party. That's not enough. And uh, and so I think it gives him a pretty free hand. And it's interesting because we haven't seen a conservative party with that kind of sway for a very long time. You know, Carter, there's there's one thought that, that kind of lingers for me, which is we've talked a lot in the past about why coronations for a political party are, are not necessarily a good thing, right? You don't really get the battle of ideas. You don't get, um, you know, uh, a road tested candidate in the sense of tactics mm-hmm. and strategy. You, you you miss out on quite a bit if you're having a coronation. 
to me, this was a really interesting race because there was this big question hanging at the beginning of it saying this is a soul searching race for the conservative party. But at the end of the day, Carter, this kind of seemed like a coronation disguised as a contest in the sense that the winner got a very large, strong mandate, but they also got to road test a lot of things and kind of make some headway to the to the gen pop. Do you agree with that? Or, 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 or and, and do you kind of see that as, as kind of they, they had their cake and eat it too? Or how do you kind of see this uh, as the frame of that question as a benefit or, or not so much for, for the conservative party and where they stand right now? Have they answered their top line question of their soul searching? This is actually the benefit. This is why we say we don't want to see coronations. This is why we say we don't want to see uh, people just put their hand up and automatically receive the, the nomination. Like at the beginning of this, did anybody think that Pierre Polyev was going to sweep the table the way he has? I mean, he did better than Stephen Harper. Belinda Stronach did better. Uh, you know, she had like in the in the mid 20s or low 20s. Um, uh, Clement was like uh, just around nine. This is big. You know, this is a bigger victory uh in many regards by pierre than ever, than any other party and it's it makes a difference because pierre now has the mandate pierre has the mandate now he can shape the party in his own image in a way that um andrew Scheer and um O'Toole, O'Toole weren't able to so this is this is huge and because it wasn't a coronation the rest of us the the you know us the pundits the the people who aren't you know, in the party, we have to stand up and take notice. It is incumbent. It is required of us um, not to poo-poo this victory. Uh, there is no uh, shortcut like the the Green Party is trying to find. Yeah, yeah, Corey, talk to me about this from your perspective. This this coronation, perhaps disguised as a contest, and where do you think it's kind of puts the the conservatives right now? Have they answered their top line question that they were looking to several months ago? Well, I think it's like a, a rom-com where it turns out it was the love in front of you all along. I don't think that the journey took them far from the start. Uh, the soul searching was pretty modest and, and pretty canned at the end of the day. But, you know, I, I want to say that this size of this victory tells us exactly one thing, and it's an important thing, but it tells us exactly one thing. And that's the hold that Polyev has over the Conservative Party of Canada. Does not mean he will win a general election. However, that hold he has over the Conservative Party is something that his two predecessors did not have. And his yeah. two predecessors, lest we forget, did get pluralities of the vote. They got more votes than Justin Trudeau did in the last two elections. So if you go in with a strong party, one that's not biting your back as you're moving into it, does that potentially offer you just that little bit extra you need to get to government? Well, you know, I would say even on its surface, maybe. Uh, you also have got a, a Trudeau government that's looking a little bit more tired by the day course there's this countervailing force of he managed to hold the party because he was he went to the right how will canadians feel about that i have my own theories about that but what we're going to see i think for the first time in quite a long time since the harper days even and lest we forget it's not as though harper had a stranglehold on the party this was after uniting two factions mm -hmm, right the mm -hmm. you know the reform party and the pcs you know forget all of the names like canadian alliance and you know, pcdrc caucus and stuff in between he had to act a little bit more gingerly and a little bit more gently than Pierre Polyev has to act at this point. It's not a stretch to say this is the strongest mandate a conservative leader has gotten from their, their caucus and their party since the 80s, maybe longer. Yeah, small Rooney. And, and, and we've seen, yeah. to your point, Corey, why that matters so much, especially in the, in the, in the stretch, in the writ period leading into 
final days of an election to have the the full force of your caucus behind you to not be you know as O'Toole may have done catch them off guard with his centrist shift uh, so to speak you know I, and I suspect a lot of them yeah. are going to be wanting the strident the um, high energy uh, the sometimes annoying Pierre Polyev that that won this race to perhaps continue that 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 game uh, that game plan going forward before I talk about that what Polyev's game plan is, how the prime minister should be digesting what he saw over the weekend. Carter, I want to come to you for a very specific question because yesterday was an incredible mandate for Pierre Polyev. Yesterday was also another proof point, one might argue, around where progressive conservatives stand in this country. Where do they stand (laughs) in this country, Carter? We've seen PCs, barring maybe Doug Ford, right, uh, been handed their ass in many jurisdictions, in many different races, uh, and have either, you know, sucked it up and and joined the more rightward force or have called themselves politically homeless. What does this kind of mean to you in terms of the progressive conservative movement? Or is that moniker just dead now, Carter? Oh, it's it's gone. It's gone. I mean, you, you bring up Doug Ford, like in some fashion, he was the bearer of the progressive conservative movement. He also was kind of one of these uh, conservatives that that went further to the right. Now, being gone now doesn't mean that it's gone forever. It was also gone when Mike Harris was the leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservatives. It was also gone when uh, Ralph Klein was the leader of, of the Alberta Progressive Conservatives. This is not the first time we've lost progressive conservatism in Canada. Um, is it the last time? You know, does it ever bounce back? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, my, my crystal ball is a little bit broken today, kind of like our soundboard. Um, so it's hard for me to know how things are going to unfold, um, in the, in the coming years. But for now, uh, the right, you know, <laughs> the center right is dead. Long live the far right. Yeah. Corey, to your point, you know, do you see room in this country to organize progressive conservatives right now? Or was this just a proof point that kind of proved it once and for all? Because there is going to be a movement that says, like, most voters are in the middle. Trudeau's marching to the left. Pierre's marching to the right. What the heck, right? Like, the 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 math still plays out in our favor. Do we break away from another party? Like, what what would, those calls are going to come. Whether they come this weekend or not, they're going to come in the coming months. They're going to remobilize, you know, lick their wounds and say, but the math still should be in our favor. The bell curve of voters are still a five in the middle. What do you think this this Polyev mandate uh, says to that? Uh, do you feel like it rebuffs it once and for all? Well, I don't want to overly simplify things, but in some ways, we're getting the parties we wanted to get. We've changed our election finance laws, so it's all small donors, which means you've got to push small donors buttons. It used to be, you now it was sleazy in many ways, but there was this moderating influence of Bay Street money, big mm. money, that said, we want you to stay kind of in the calm and steady middle, Right. Uh, similarly, we've gone from leadership contests that had uh, delegates get selected largely based on their tenure and their, you know, their knowledge of the party in their local area, and they got to go forward. And even the ones that were elected were somewhat moderated by the fact that there were a bunch of delegates that were simply appointed based on all of the party positions they've held, the grandees, right? So they ended up doing horse trading and picking more moderate leaders as they went along. Well, we don't do that anymore. You know, we we take extreme positions to get money and we take extreme positions to get voters. And then are we all sitting here shocked when extreme uh, candidates win and benefit from that? I mean, we shouldn't be that surprised. And this is maybe a good example of, uh, you know, 
the best laid plans, things going awry, unintended consequences. Because, yeah, our system is now very much beholden to candidates who can capture the more extreme views of the world. Because as much as we talk about Pierre Polyev having this massive conservative party, and I'm not trying to diminish the fact that he sold just a shit ton of memberships. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The reality is, there's probably still more people in the quote-unquote middle. Now, that middle is shrinking all of the time because voters are also moving to the polls. There's a bit of a wag the dog thing here where they start to reflect some of those more extreme positions, um, which we've unpacked in the past. But, you know, I, I guess... Is there a place in the middle? Uh, where would the money come from, Zane? I don't know, because it doesn't sound like I'm moderate as hell and I'm going to cut a check for $1,000 is particularly compelling. Yes, you could create a political party that has all of these delegates, but you're going to be shouted at that it's gatekeepers and it's undemocratic. And and if the only thing that's going to differentiate you from the conservative party leadership that just ran is that you're more elitist, God help you. You're doomed, Right. So unless there's a catalyst, unless there's a swing back, unless there's something more than just sour grapes, we lost the conservative leadership, so we want to go somewhere else. I don't see an option in the middle coming forward. Is there a hunger? Is there a thirst for it from Canadians? I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a lot of people in the middle, especially organizers who are feeling homeless, who would like to think there is. Mm. But we're seeing pretty high turnout relative to elections that we were in the 90s in those more moderate milquetoast times. and. I don't know. Like, is there actually a clamoring for this? That's the other question. Let's not put it all on money and voting systems. Carter, you know, there's a couple of things that people have been looking for from Pierre Polyev the entire time, the last seven months. Uh, one was, it's going to happen. It's going to have to happen. It's the pivot, the big pivot. Oh, my God, he's going to pivot, right? There's no way this is viable. Let's talk about that. The other thing that it, they're looking for is the other P is how well is he going to do patching up? Because he ran a pretty scorched earth race against Sheree. Like he kicked Sheree's ass, but he also ran a scorched earth race. He didn't kind of, you know, do the standard I'm ahead statesman like, you know, he sharp elbows till the end sort of thing. From his speech that you heard, let's talk about the patching up. How well did he do on that front? And how important do you think that is going to be as a core strategy to patch things up with the 15% that Sheree represents and might be more, might be less? but that progressive, conservative, moderate middle that will find a home in his party, do you think he did well enough to to, to, to patch it up uh, on Saturday? Or what more work needs to be done there? I think he's nodded towards it, but I don't think he needs to do anything more than that, to be honest. Um, you know, Sheree, it was was being um, the, the kindly gentleman that said that he would stick around to, to uh, help the party, uh, as he did in the past. Well, you know, I don't recall seeing him at a lot of stuff in the past. You know, this was as much as he uh, was a welcome voice for me in this race. He was a bit of a surprise, I think. Um, and I wouldn't surprise me at all to see him just simply return to, uh, you know, to his his world of private business and uh, make money like his family obviously seems to want him to make. So, you know, Pierre has done what he's supposed to do. He he reached out. He, he did the things. Um did he do the best that he's ever, you know, that's ever been done? Uh, no, but he doesn't need to. He won with, you know, a huge percentage of the vote, almost 70% of the vote. Um, everybody has to fall in line. There is no, there is no second group that can form. And uh, Pierre's done what he needs to do, but he, he, it won't matter because he didn't actually need to do it. Corey, did he need to do it? Does he need to do anything on the patching up with his, his competitors and whether it's his competitors directly or the ideologies that they represent of conservatism, 
this might be interchangeable. Does he need to do anything on that front? Uh, it's it's easy to be magnanimous when you've won by such an overwhelming margin, mm-hmm. which he did. And I thought his statement was fine. You know, there wouldn't even be a Canada without Jean Charest. Very funny when you think about the tone that he's taken throughout the rest of the campaign, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. nailing him for Huawei, talking about the corruption, how he's just a liberal. And then he thanks him for the very country that he's looking to lead existing. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I guess they're not mutually exclusive, but tonally it's it's wild. Right. And it is one of those things that I will never, never be that enthused about the the hard pivot on election night, we're all on the same, we're all on team Canada. We're all on team Alberta. You know, I'm just happy people put their hats in the ring after, you know, the nastiest possible things being thrown at each other for 28 days. It just reminds me how much it's all bullshit theater. And, uh, and for those reasons, I'll never be that comfortable with it, but he played bullshit theater exactly as it's supposed to be played. He said the things you're supposed to say when you're elected leader. And that wasn't necessarily a given based on how he acted. No, throughout the campaign. So in so far, do I think that he's going to have a hard pivot? No, but he has shown like the soft pivot. He's shown that he knows how to perform and do the things that you're supposed to do when you're on the big stage and Canadians are looking at you tuning in on the, you know, conservative party live, you know, stream for the first time. And that in itself, I think is a, is a data point that we should observe and we should think about. He didn't need to, but he did. And the fact that he did, I think was as much for that general audience that we were just talking about you know, that that moderate middle. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't for anyone in the room based on the temperature of the room when various names were said. He didn't need to do that for the room. Carter, you know, I, I want to talk about what the the liberals need to do here, both perhaps even tactically and certainly messaging wise. But before I get there, l- let's hit on what, what Corey mentioned here very quickly. And I may be taking it in a slightly different direction where, Corey, you mentioned that throughout the campaign, Pierre Polyev had this one tone and then on Victory Night, he had his other separate different tone. That's also kind of akin to how he talked about issues, Carter. He had like this very sort of like, hey, Canada, I'm going to talk to you about the things you care about. And he would nail it on housing, perhaps nail it on passport offices, two examples, right? Um, throwing out there. But then he'd also had this like conspiracy arm to him, which was like, wait, I don't know. When the video started, I don't know what this was going to be. Was this going to be a, a knock against the WEF for, for running our life? Or was this going to be a solid, uh, you know, case uh, against, uh, you know, municipal zoning regulations on housing? And and I think for a lot of people, they're seeing that as perhaps the the soft spot, the soft tissue in Pierre Polyev. Would you agree, Carter, that there's that this guy's got this two different wavelengths he's operating? Or do you see it the other way, saying that, no, this guy actually has a flexibility to operate in two different wavelengths and own both of them at the same time, and therein is his coalition? Where do you kind of see that right now as a strategy lens? Is it a weakness or is it a core asset? If they do that, they're walking straight into the trap that the, that the Democrats ran into with Donald Trump. They, you are asking the uh, electorate to make a reasoned and rational decision. Uh, electorates don't make reasonable and rational decisions. Uh, wish that they did, but they don't. And so while we pretend these games, we pretend that this is the way it's going to go, it isn't actually the way that it's going to go. So if you don't define your own election question, if you don't define, you know, you ask what the liberals need to do, the liberals need to make this a question about things that Pierre Polyev can't win on. That needs to be what they need to do. They can't simply say, I can out Pierre Polyev this guy, or I can beat this guy on his own questions. I can beat this guy on his hypocrisy. I can beat this guy on his conspiracy 
uh, theory. So just to be clear, you're saying that's all a mistake. It's all a huge mistake. We've seen that time and again. I mean, I'm I, again, I'm, I'm inundated in Surrey. You know, this is going to be the election question. This is going to be the election question. They're all telling me what the election question is. If it is that question, then we lose, right? If we don't define our own election questions in a campaign, if you do not define the question, you will not get the outcome you want. And I think that that's the problem of the liberals. The liberals in the last two elections have barely, barely squeaked by on a better election question than everybody else. Barely. This time, if they try that, they will go down to defeat and we will have Prime Minister Polyev. Corey, I want to I want to get into the liberal side a second, but I want to do ask the question that I asked Carter about these two lanes that Pierre is operating in. This what affects you on a daily basis lane and then this quasi conspiracy theory lane. Is this a liability that he can operate in these two worlds simultaneously dip in and out as he chooses week to week, day to day? Or is it an asset that he can kind of use these two lanes as a stitching together of his coalition? Uh, how do you kind of see this right now, top line, uh, before we get into what the liberals need to do? It is um, it's something I've been thinking a lot about. And there's this evolved theory of campaign that that we've discussed where maybe the modern candidate just needs to fill the pantry, say all of the things for all of the audiences and put them forward and just make the assumption. And it seems to be based on you know data that you can target these things and you can make your people tune out the things they just don't want to hear or they might not be inclined to believe because there's so much bullshit being thrown around anyways it becomes pretty easy to say maybe that was taken out of context maybe they're just amplifying one quote and and there was a very legitimate or reasonable cause that he said these things i think that we live in such deeply cynical times about the attacks that politicians and political staffers make that they just carry so much less currency and that just feeds the overall shamelessness that we've got here um and make no mistake polyev is very good at filling that pantry he has done all of his crazy shit about bitcoin and the world economic forum and <laughs> you know he's talked mm. about uh the convoy and in, in a bunch of ways that are valuable for all sorts of gradients of conservative and and you know even moderate canadians who are maybe a little uneasy about some of the steps that the government has taken but he's also made this middle canada message that i got to tell you i think is going to have immense resonance uh, there, he got the quote he wanted out of his speech. I've got it right here. It was it was pulled verbatim in almost all of the coverage I read about it. We have a government that doesn't provide the basic services it is supposed to while coming up with complex and damaging programs. Canadians don't need a government to run their lives. We need a government that can run its own passport office. That is damning and that is pointed and that is going to find an audience. And if the rest of the stuff doesn't matter, if we live in a world where that stuff matters less, then he's got better than a shooter's chance here. I, you know, I, I think that uh, there's an awful lot that he's got going for him right now. Carter, you know, my, you, you know, my whole game is preamble, so I'm not going to let you get into it right away. But, uh, but I want to talk about how, <laughs> how you would sell a prime minister today in Justin Trudeau about what happened over the weekend. So if you're in the Liberal Party, uh, how would you honestly give him an assessment like of what happened? Uh, would you would you say, sir, this is a dominant victory. We need to act now. What would your message be if you were the truth teller, the prime minister today? What would you tell him? You, you'd have your, you know, your, your 9 p.m. call before we get into what the party needs to do. How would you break this news to a guy who at his cabinet retreat says, by the way, guys, I'm sticking around. 
and now he knows who he's sticking around against. What's the message you want would want him to know? What's the thought process or the trajectory that you'd want his mind to start operating in now that this is a done deal with such um, sheer dominance over the weekend? I think that it would have to be, how are you going to, you know, if you're going to be the prime minister uh, four years from now, you know, after the next election, which is apparently what you want, then what are you willing to change? What are you willing to change about yourself? What you're willing to change about the people who are around you? Because right now, if, if you're not willing to change, then my question is whether or not the people will just simply ask for a change instead, you know, ask for a different change, right? Because that tends to be what happens. It's what happened to Stephen Harper. Um, you know, Stephen Harper's government ran out of, out of some movement, you know, out of some steam, but he was still there. And we had, you know, the, these types of things, you can't have Jenny Byrne, you know, Jenny goes back and away and comes back ready to, to lead Pierre's campaign. Totally changed, totally understanding the moment that we're here. And, um, you know, I'm, I fear that the prime minister doesn't understand the moment that he's in and he's going to need to make some significant changes. If he can thinks he can just win because he's always won, um, you know, everybody wins until they lose. And that loss at this particular moment is going to be fucking brutal. <laughs> Everyone wins before they lose. Steven That's Carter. just not even true. Yeah, uh, Corey, Most people just lose. Yeah. Carter, Carter, do you... Corey, do you want to get a some merch going on mean? the store? That's a fucking great some... line. That's a great yeah, line. Also Money is the currency. <laughs> you know what, you guys? Everyone you guys... wins before they lose. <laughs> Until, Until they lose. They lose. Doesn't matter. Oh, sorry. Okay. It's bad, well, and it's going to be on a t-shirt soon. Um, Corey, answer this. Really how, how would you break? How would you break this news to the PM? And because you know, the job of a, of an advisor, a strategist, is not to be like, "Hey, sh- sir, this happened." It's to mold that into a theory or an idea or something that you, you, you would want to create action about or for Corey, what would that be for you? I, first of all, this is not news that needs to be broken to him. You make it sound like it's in the Godfather when he's like, why don't you tell me what everybody around me already no, I, knows? I, but you know what I'm I trying mean, to say? Fuck. I mean, like, how do you, how are you, you have an ability to, uh, to, 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 to frame how this is being processed right now. There's a lot yeah. of noise. If you're a senior advisor, how are you allowing and framing this to be processed? I think that's that's actually exactly the, the point here, Corey. Yeah, I'm sure. on your side, Zane, except when you pick on me, you dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Carter, I, I, you're, you're so fair weather. I'm upset with you now. Um, no, it's okay. Look, talking to the prime minister about what comes next, I, I think that Stephen has made a couple of points about – the faltering like what do you want to do why are you even still here is the kind mm-hmm. of rude version of what needs to needs to be said here uh and it can't just be i want to stop that guy because there are probably other people who would have a better chance of stopping pierre polyev you know people who don't carry the baggage that trudeau does going forward i can think of one christian freeland immediately comes to mind if that were something that were going to happen so it's got to be more than that it's got to be the reason why it's the justin trudeau government the things that he needs to finish the things that he still wants to do um, but when you look at Polyev, for sure, you're going to want to define him hard and fast with the things that Canadians will not like about him. Certainly he's given you a lot of, uh, a lot of ammunition by being such a strident, you know, almost campus club style conservative for so long, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Unadulterated conservatism, you know, the purest conservatism possible. 
and and so yeah, I mean, he's got all sorts of statements on on abortion and a woman's right to choose. He's got all sorts of statements on all sorts of things that you can pull from that I've already rattled off. Things like Bitcoin, you know, things like uh, how he feels about paying for the programs that Canadians generally feel pretty good about through COVID nineteen. And and yeah, throw those all in the window. Make sure they're tested. Make sure they work with Canadians. Define them hard. Define them fast. But the other thing that I would say to the prime minister is don't kid yourself. The narrative he's created is a stiletto through the gaps in our armor here. We have uh, a lot of basic services that seem to be floundering, and we are doing a bunch of things that are making people uncomfortable because change makes people uncomfortable. So you're going to have to define a universe here. Let me put it this way. Maybe as Albertans, we're pretty used to this. Mm. And if I were if I were the liberals, I would actually be looking at how some narratives have played out in Alberta, what's worked, what has not worked in the past. Because in times of change, when people are fearful, it is pretty, pretty alluring to say, we're just going to go back to how it was. We liked how it was. Remember that? How it was was pretty damn sweet. And if you are the, if you know, the NDP went through this in 2019 here in Alberta, if you're the people who brought in this change, this necessary change, this change that was designed to cope with the changing world, then you can't get yourself stuck in a box where it's status quo versus scary change. It's got to be my change versus some other type of change because the status quo no longer exists. Like that's something that needs to be defined hard and fast by the prime minister. There is no going back to the world Pierre Polyev's trying to sell you here. Look at what's going on in Europe right now with Ukraine. Look at how solar and wind are about to take over, you know, all of these other energy sources in the United States. This world is changing. There's no going back. So which forward do you want? Do you want a forward that's inclusive and brings everybody along and is environmentally sustainable and leaves a future for our children? Or do you want this dystopian hellscape where everybody is on their own paying for cryptocurrency with cryptocurrency for the you know the few things that they can afford in a world that's a total war with itself because that's what Pierre Polyev's offering or some version of that. And so I guess my point would be if you sit there and you're just saying nah about the things Pierre Polyev is saying, you're in a lot of trouble. You've got mm. to define a, a different ballot question. And this does go to to Stephen's point. Carter, let's talk about uh messaging strategy here. Um for the liberals, you know, one of the sins I'd say that progressives have had for a long time is that they they feel like people will simply vote for what makes them angry versus what affects them. And I think, however, it's probably a combination of the two, right? That there are certain things that offend them. The comments around convoys, for example, uh, comments around, um, you know, uh, peers made comments in the past about many different topics that, that could offend them, that could make them angry, that could rile them up. Um, what is the liberal balance today, as you see, between anger and what affects them? Because there has to be a balance, or you may disagree that there isn't a balance here, that the mistake is to go uh, in, in, in one lane exclusively. Tell me what you, what you think between, between this model framework that I'm putting out on the table. I think that there's a group of people who follow politics who get angry about politics. I think that group of people is inherently very small. Uh, most people don't follow politics. The way that they make up their mind on who they're going to vote for is staggering, right? I mean, how much data do I have right now on how many people, you know, how many people make up their mind in the last 24 hours before the election? I have reams of data that shows us that somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% of voters will make up their mind in the last 24 hours. How are they making their mind up in that moment? 
yeah, sure, it could be outrage. Uh, we saw that with Lake of Fire um, when Danielle Smith did Lake of Fire and didn't respond to it. It took a while, but we did get to outrage. More often than not, though, and this is what drives, I think, progressives absolutely crazy. It's not about the outrage. It's not about the 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 very clear to them, uh, you know, contrast between someone who's horrible and someone who's fantastic. Instead, it's about what do I get? What's the thing? Because the average voter oftentimes boils down to selfishness. Um, and I think that progressives, progressives especially, fall into the trap of trying to be holier than thou and not offering up um, the cookie and instead only offering up um, the hard work that would enable them to get the cookie. So my recommendation, you know, start giving the cookie. It's it's way easier to get people to vote for you when they, they want what you're offering. And I'm not seeing a lot of that out of the progressive world. Corey? Uh, your your take right now, and perhaps that liberal messaging balance in the most macro of, of senses, um, do they need to define him hard and get that anger machine going and, and get people riled up about how crazy it is? And, and I kind of, you know, case in point, let me give you an example. One of the comments, um, you know, that's been circulating the last couple of days is that why doesn't the left or the liberals or, or some, you know, third party group just say Pierre Polyev's a white supremacist? That he 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 hangs out with white supremacists. Isn't shouldn't that be enough to to just define this guy and, and get it over and done with? How much energy can you spend on things like that that might get people angry versus you know then having to talk about what affects them so to, so to speak? I think you need to be careful that when you're defining him, you're not doing it in a way that's just about shock value. Because mm. shock value diminishes over time. So you say white supremacist, yeah, that that should be disqualifying. And those words have a lot of charge. But you do that three years out from an election. By the time the election comes, people are going to be somewhat numb to that charge. So when we talk about defining him at this time, it's making people feel things about him, but not not like salacious, like shocking things, just things about his record right there that, you know, you say, it's almost Pavlovian. You say, Pierre, I say, restricting a woman's right to choose. You say, Polyev, I say, uh, would kill childcare, universal childcare. And so a lot of what your definition needs to be now is really around that. Um, there's also a stream of work that is really about just wrong footing him over the next bit. Arrange some votes in the House of Commons about Canadian childcare. You know, let's mm. let's see where Pierre Polyev votes. Now, be careful because you're also giving him an opportunity to clean up his record. So you're going to have to make sure you define it in a way that just really clearly defines that contrast uh, with people. Um, and just get him on the record. Show he's same old, same old Pierre Polyev. Then you've also got another stream of work that needs to occur as the government, which is just clean your shit up. We've talked a bit about all of the files that the liberals have languishing right now. I want to be clear what I don't mean by this is sitting there and being defensive and talking about the things you're doing badly. I'm talking about getting into the public service and saying, this cannot be a problem in three months. I don't care what you need to do. This is resolved in three months. There is a zero month backlog on passports. We have gotten our, you know, our programs for newcomers down to, you know, reasonable three to six months or whatever would normally mm -hmm, be mm -hmm. the case beforehand. We can't, we can't do this anymore. Right. Because there is a, uh, there is something in Pierre Polyev's critique that is really worth hearing if you're the liberals, which is if you can't run the government, that's disqualifying. You know, there is a managerial competence that's expected of governments, fairly or unfairly, it's expected of them. And then uh, then you've got to start 
getting control of the agenda again. And again, getting control of the agenda does not mean just talking about the things Pierre Polyev wants to talk about. He's talking about the things you want to talk about, to build the contrast that you want to build. And you've got to start building towards that. So maybe we'll call that, you know, four different pieces of work that I've put in front of people. But the idea is you can't allow yourself to forget which piece of work is for which purpose. You can't get consumed by it. Your message has got to be your message. It can't be about the other stuff you're trying to clean up. You got to define this guy. Now, 2025 comes, shock the hell out of people. In that election, do what you got to do. But uh, shock right now, I think, would be a mistake. There's there's a limited place for it to get people's attention. But if you've really got those, like, you know, statements that are, you know, shocking, not for their content, but because of how you're using your words, save it for the election. Carter, let's talk about Pierre's strategy to, to round this out. Can he just continue doing exactly what he has done? in this race for the next what three years and is there is there diminishing returns on that if that is the strategy so the question is sh- can he do that and the question is more specifically should he do that what should his game plan be in the most macro sense is it just going hard constantly um as he has in this leadership race scorched earth as the tone sharp elbows or does he does he change tune certainly may not pivot as we've talked about in terms of policy and, and conservatism in that sense, but what is the, the, the messaging and the contouring and is he, is he showing a different side of himself here, Carter? I wouldn't, I mean, I would continue to do what he's doing. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the, pro- one of the critiques I was thinking when you were saying, you know, we're going to call him a white supremacist. Uh, one of the challenges there is that he speaks the way a lot of people want to speak. Right. The same thing happened with Trump. Right. Trump is the every man that speaks the way that everybody wants to be spoke. You know, his line about the passport offices, his work around, you know, the lineups and walking the walk and talks that he did around all these types of things. If as long as you keep fucking up, he's going to keep hammering you and he's going to hammer you in a way that is uh, pretty good. Um, We've all had problems. He's going to step too far. But when he steps too far, um, then the liberals need to be willing to pounce. Right. The, the liberals need to be very careful, though, because a, so many of his critiques were solid. The part that I really agreed with Corey on, uh, and again, it makes me sad. Um, what I really agreed with Corey about is that um, the government has to clean up its own its own act. I mean, there are some things that governments are always going to get screwed on. But the good news is that Pierre Polyev has no credibility when it comes to First Nations issues. Um, so you're not going to get the shit kicked out of you on First Nations issues. It's the stuff where you're expected to operate as a business, right? As a business would, that stuff needs to be really tightened up. Corey, any lessons for Pierre as he continues what's probably going to be an ongoing campaign for him? He's probably going to keep that same sort of energy, that same sort of maybe even pace of production of content. Uh what advice would you have for him uh, as he as he probably does that? Let's just assume that the liberal NDP deal holds out theoretically for the next three years. Yeah, well, look, we have a long way to go to the election. I know this has been mentioned, but it's an important point. And there is a question about pacing that needs to occur here. I could have said this about the liberals as a thing they should do for Pierre Polyev, but I'm going to say it about something Pierre Polyev's got to watch out for. For the liberals, it would have been Give him enough rope to hang himself. You know, when he really goes out there, he goes out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, for him, it is don't get high on your own supply. Watch yourself. You are not God. 
Uh, I know you've got the support of so much of your party behind you, but your party is not necessarily representative of Canadians as a whole. What resonates with them won't necessarily resonate with Canadians as a whole. You can do wrong. You do not just perfectly land every communication that you put out there. And if the wrong one lands at the wrong time with a big enough group of people, you are going to cause yourself a world of hurt. So watch yourself. You've got to check some of your instincts. Um, I think it's impressive that he is able to just sit down and muse and put together a walk and talk or, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, what I thought was actually pretty ridiculous. His, you know, breakfast with Justin Trudeau. Yeah, it's we impressive intellectually like, yeah. that he can do that. Does not mean that that's always the right instinct. And he needs to think about polls. He needs to think about what people actually want to see and what to hear. And when he's on message, he's he's really good. But he does indulge himself a little too much, in my opinion. And I think that is an instinct that will not serve him well. Uh, so message discipline is a real strength of his. Stay on it. You know, As the situation evolves, I'm sure his messaging will evolve. Hold the government to account on things that Canadians are anxious about. Remind Canadians that you were the person who brought these up first. Things like inflation, where, look, even the three of us were saying, Come on, and you know this is ridiculous. It's supply side inflation. It's you know well, obviously it's become something bigger than that, and um, and just stick to what you do well, but know that there's a limit to what you do well. There's a limit to what anybody does well. So just be fucking smart, careful, because otherwise you are going to step on the mother of all rakes. It is going to smash your face into pieces, and uh, you risk being the Jeremy Corbyn of the right. We're going to leave that segment there. Moving on to our next segment, our next segment, Seeking Sovereignty from the World. Uh, Stephen Carter, the Queen, has passed, um, and she is uh, and she is no more. Uh, tributes from all across the world. I've just left this as an open segment, uh, Stephen Carter. This is the podcast guest book uh, slash uh, uh, memorial book that you can leave a, a comment for uh, the, the Queen in the afterlife. You can leave a comment for the royal family. You can leave a comment for... Uh, what this would mean for the future of Canada. Stephen Card, the floor is open to you. And I know when I give you uh, such a wide berth that you always take it to an interesting place. So don't let us down, Stephen Carter. I mean, listen, I, I think that uh, it, it's been very eye-opening. First of all, you know, I mean, obviously I, I'm the oldest. I'm not 70 yet. I mean, this is a someone who's <laughs> been the, the queen as it has been a part of our lives for all of our, um, you know, for, for from for the whole time, right? Very few people actually would remember the king before. Um, so this is a significant shift. But as part of that significant shift, there are things that we didn't know, right? There were things like an official period of mourning uh, that lasts for quite a period of time, where you know, um, you know, it's been it's kind of been loosened a little bit, but at the same time, it is a still a very real thing that is impacting uh, the workings of government in Canada. Uh, you know, it's one thing to impact the the workings of government in in uh, UK, yeah. in in Great Britain, you know. But here, it's it's, it's I'm like I, I, I'm I'm surprised. I know I have friends in other campaigns in British Columbia that have been told to put the brakes on their campaigns. Really? God, they're sitting incumbents, oh, right? Sitting incumbents, and the cities have been told that they are in the official period of mourning, and the incumbents should probably be standing down for the period of mourning. Um, well, that wasn't expected. No one Are you expected guys standing that. Down, by the way, your campaign? No, not at all. You know, I mean, come on, we got a campaign to win. Um, so, uh, 
you know, we didn't stand down when my candidate's mother passed. Like we're, we're a terrible, I'm, I'm a horrible person to talk to about this stuff, but um, no, we, we have a, you know, it, it has impact and I, I'm certainly more of a monarchist than, than Corey is not necessarily because I, I hold the monarchy up as some, some great institution that, uh, you know, that we should, you know, stylize our lives after. I mean, I don't want my younger brother sleeping with children, but you know, this is, this is now, Jesus. <laughs> what was too far? What what is the part going? Okay. Um, but I think that, Fuck. I think that having this constitutional monarchy as a way of, of signing off on things, we talked a lot about your, your mother-in-law and, and the, the role of the lieutenant, lieutenant governor of a, of a person of, of independence away from the political process that stands not as judge and juror, but as, as a, as a reasonable fail safe, um, just to push things through. I I'm, I'm more, I'm more in love with the monarchy and the, 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 the constitutional monarchy, I think than I've ever been. That's an, that's an interesting point, Corey, you know, there, there's a lot of chatter about whether, um, now that a very revered person, is no longer at the head of the said monarchy. Will the will the halo effect or will the will the glow still remain? Your thoughts as you you've witnessed the last couple of days. Seems like it's been a week for the last couple of days um, yeah. of uh, of the queen's passing and the and the subsequent events thereafter. Well, look, I don't care for the monarchy as an institution. It offends basically every sensibility I have. I think it's undemocratic. I think it's illiberal. Uh, the idea that somebody is born into this role and then we put ourselves into pretzels to say that's a good thing like Stephen Carter is just doing makes me nuts. Um, <laughs> here's the thing about what you've just said. The the idea of her vacating the role by dying, that's how you vacate it, I suppose, and that changing the way we think about it. There's, there's going to be some truth to that, I think, in a global sense. I think mm. in Canada, because it would require 10 out of 10 provinces to change. Very unlikely we're going to do anything about it. We also have such a kind of fraught constitutional environment that I don't think people are that keen to open the constitution in such a dramatic way. No. Um, it just doesn't seem like, you know, the cost benefit analysis is not there because I, you know, we wouldn't become America. We would probably just make it. So the governor general is the president of Canada or whatever, and is just chosen by parliament done. We're out. Right. But we're not even going to do that. That's, that's pretty clear to me. However, when you think about the monarchy more generally, and I think to Stephen's point about some people are surprised by this official period of mourning and all of the things that have to go on. Well, the monarchy has been the backdrop to our lives for our whole lives. If you're 70 or under, or frankly, even a little older than 70, you've only known Queen Elizabeth. It's just sort of been there. You haven't ever thought about it. You're like a frog in water. You learn words. You learn that there's a queen. I, I mean, this is a true story. I remember watching The Naked Gun. You remember the movie The Naked Gun in the yeah, 80s? Yeah, sure. You know, it, it has, um, you know, police squad has to protect the Queen of England. And I remember watching that and saying, why do the Americans care about the the Queen of, of the United Kingdom and the Queen of Canada? That doesn't make any sense to me, right? Like, it was just a thing that was floating around. Um, and you just learn about it at such a young age and in such a naive way. Mm -hmm. And it comes forward. But the death and the change forces you to look at all of these things that we're just soaking in that are absolutely dumb and absurd and ridiculous in a modern democracy. And we say, 
oh, oh, fuck. Yeah, that's actually the way our government works. Oh, my God, we're a monarch. Oh, this is so weird, right? Um, we saw things like the Court of Queen's Bench becoming the Court of King's Bench, Queen's Printer becoming King's Printer. Well, yeah, of course those were named after Queen Elizabeth II because she was the queen. But you don't think about those things mm-hmm. as they move through. Nope. And all of a sudden, you got to think about them. You know, I was a senior official of the government of Alberta for many years. When I signed a contract, I didn't sign it, Corey Hogan. I signed it, Corey Hogan, on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen and Right of Alberta, right? Like she is the personification of the state. And those are weird fucking things. And when she dies, the state dies in a funny way and flips over to the new person. And that's why we have these long official periods of mourning. And I was on this committee called the Demise of the Crown Committee in my time, mm-hmm. which existed, you know, and ran long before the queen actually died, where you thought about everything, the official periods of mourning. Do we have enough black cotton to put on the pictures of the queen that are in the legislature? Remember, we got to get these flags down at this time and we got to put them up for the accession and so on and so forth. You know, lots of things you're allowed to do, not do. Can't can't make announcements, can't make events. You got to let all of the other public bodies know these things. Carter, that's why some of the other cities, I'm sure, are dealing with Mm -hmm. this. It just all sort of flows. And 70 years ago, you know, men in black suits with armbands would be walking around a city that was devoid of any life as we all mourned the death of the monarch. But it's 2022 now. And we got to look at all this stuff now. And it seems nuts. So I think a lot of other places in the world are going to be saying we got to change this or at least contemplating it. I think in Canada, a lot of Canadians are going to say, this is fucking weird. And is this actually what we're all about? And is this what Canada is? But we just don't have the ability to change it. And I do think it's an opportunity for us to be maybe a little less sad and a little more contemplative. I mean, the woman was 96. God love her. But she she had a full life there, right? Let's be contemplative about the kind of government we want and the kind of things that we want our system of government to embody. Carter. End of my rant. Good rant, Corey. I mean, Carter, there's so many directions I can take this. I, I, won't, I don't want to spend too much time on it. So let's Such keep it. Such a weak rant. Let's, I mean, okay. this is why I'm known as the guy who does the rants. Because <laughs> that was bullshit. That was Getting weak. all weepy for the Queen of England. God, That's right it. I am. God uh, damn. Carter, we could take this in many directions. We could talk about, you know, is now the time to talk about colonialism and during this period of mourning. We could talk about, you know, what this means uh, for Canada going forward, as Corey's alluded to. I want to try to keep this in our sort of lane of do any of the tools, tactics, strategies of political strategy apply to Charles in the sense of what does he need to be cautious about? Because he is building a brand, Carter, right? He is, you know, trying to communicate. Oh, he's got a brand. Well, this is the thing. He's trying to, in certain cases, both build it and try to like use a bit of a halo effect that he has. And, And is he... Any advice on the honeymoon period, on the messaging, on the overall sort of political strategy or the campaign strategy that one would need to think of that probably has an overlap to his world, Carter? I think it's to be the the real man that we haven't met yet. Um, you know, he's always been in the shadow. He's always been a little bit behind uh, the scenes. Um, and then when we saw him make his first public address and the emotion and uh, quiet dignity, I think, that he brought to that address, uh, changed the way I think, you know, changed the way I was thinking about him for certain. And I think it will change a lot of people. I mean, you're, you're seeing, uh, a group of people slowly, very slowly, um, perhaps fall in love with him as the monarch and it's going to take time, but it needs to be done on television, on TikTok, on, 
uh, mediums that people are paying attention to. The great lesson of Queen Elizabeth was allowing her coronation to be broadcast uh, in whatever year that was. Um, this is a uh, this is the next thing that we need to see is is people falling in love with Charles the way they fell in love with with Elizabeth. And the only way to do that is to put yourself out there and to to bury yourself. I know that Corey uh, is certainly open to to falling in love with with Charles. <laughs> Um, Why are you repeating that over and over again? It's so weird. Because Charles, people love Charles. Do you get paid? Oh, God. People Corey, do. Have you, have you uh, been have watching you fall- the, the crown? You, Corey, do you look I forward am. to falling in love with Charles on TikTok? Is that is that what you're looking forward to? Carter, is there a gas leak in your house? What there is- may be. What I, I did a lot of out, outside stuff. <laughs> uh, I rode a long ways on my bicycle, and uh, I'm pretty tired, if I'm honest. Corey, messaging strategy, communications principles as Charles takes the throne. What do you think? Well, um, it, when when you're following a popular incumbent, you want to embrace the incumbent. You want to take a lot of that halo effect. And I do think it's an opportunity for people to look at Charles again for the first time. Um Obviously, if you're of, a, of basically my age or older, you're going to remember the divorce with mm-hmm. Diana and the phone call that was leaked uh, with Camilla, subject matter of that, and then the death of Diana and how closed off the royal family seemed. And just, you know, there's not a lot, there's not all good there. Uh, and Charles is certainly not the queen in that he also tended to get involved in a bunch more causes, some of them a little more fringe, frankly. And it'll be interesting to see if he can put that aside. And so if you're Charles, I guess I would say you want to be loved like your mother. You've got to emulate her approach, mm. which was largely to stay out of these things. Things that you have, you're a 73-year-old man, you're set in your ways, but you're going to have to act in a different fashion going forward if you're going to capture the imagination of the United Kingdom, who, who are going to be looking to give you a shot, right? Like, you know, in the United Kingdom, there's this sense of real loss, like, in in some ways, when you think about Queen Elizabeth II's tenure, think about all of the colonies that declared independence or left and became part of the broader Commonwealth family or and how the United Kingdom has changed as a world power in that time. I mean, arguably, it's it's not so much a world power anymore. And this is going to be a moment when Britons will be a little bit anxious about that. They'll be thinking about their place in the world and they're going to have some goodwill ready for you here. But you could also fuck it up pretty quickly if if your quote unquote first second first impression is uh is not quite what it needs to be so emulate not just you know don't just don yourself in her legacy but emulate it if you want to be thought of the same carter finishes off on but this. i i think that he has the opportunity to remain in some fashion if you will lowercase p political uh with issues around climate change and children these are issues that he's he's long been associated with uh and they're authentic. Um, we've talked about authentic- authenticity in politicians for a long time. And I think that Charles really has the opportunity, uh, King Charles, forgive me, uh, to, uh, to define himself in his authentic role as the leader of, of Great Britain and the worldwide leader uh, for, for issues relating to uh, global warming, uh, climate change, and uh, children. And that's just not his job as monarch there is an elected government okay well i disagree with you because i'm right and you're wrong 
We're going to leave that segment there. Moving on to our final segment, our over, under, and our lightning round. Carter, some things stay the same, and, and that is uh, we do this for you. We do this segment for you. Stephen Carter. Thank you. Overrated or underrated Pierre Polyev's victory. Some may say oh. it's overrated because it was going to happen regardless. This just now solidifies what we now knew for months. Underrated, you might say, the magnitude of it, the scope and scale of it. Where do you stand, overrated, underrated, Stephen Carter? I think it's it's underrated. I think that you know, watching the media, I want to say overrated because I'm watching the 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 media do their thing, right? Where all of a sudden this is such an unexpected victory, blah blah blah. We all knew he was going to win. The question was by how much. Uh, we've known since they kicked Patrick Brown out of the party that he was going to win. So um, this is simply a you know. But it is still underrated because he still has this. Um, he owns the stage now, and I think that the the problem that I'm seeing is that Trudeau needs to figure out how to respond to that, and I think it's going to be super duper hard for Trudeau. Um, and that's why I think ultimately whatever I said was the first choice uh, was the way that I responded. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Carter. I really appreciate that, Corey. Overrated or underrated, Pierre Polyev's victory? There's a fucking gas leak. Yeah, yeah you guys. Yeah. This is you should have uh, recorded a few more episodes while I was away just to get the rust. Yeah, out. we Jesus, got rusty. Jesus Christ! Really. <laughs> um, rust so is his, in his victory fucking bloodstream at this point. Yes, Corey. Hilarious. His victory overrated. His victory overrated. He himself underrated. You know, people have got to stop acting as though him winning the party by so much means anything more than the party is behind him very strongly, which is important. But, you know, people are acting as though this means, you know, 70% of the conservative party is going to get 70% of the public, you know, and that's obviously not going to be the case. But the same skill set that allowed him to get such a hold on his party, he is going to be able to apply in the general population. The guy is very good at message discipline. The guy can talk, he can deliver a point and he's got a united conservative machine behind him, one that's bigger than it's ever been before. And lest we forget, that is a conservative machine that will be going up against a liberal government that is going to be quite long in the tooth. And that's after the conservatives actually won the popular vote in the last two elections. So, yeah, I mean, I I am obviously not going to dwell on this notion of, okay, but what about all of his views? Because I think we've seen through Trump, through Doug Ford, through any number of candidates, through Jason Kenney, through Danielle Smith here in Alberta, that just because you have those one or two views that a set of the population will see as disqualifying does not mean that the public is going to disqualify you. Those days seem to be done. Mm -hmm. So if you say disqualification's not a thing anymore, like just use that as a thought exercise. What do you think about Pierre Polyev's chances? Mm. Well, I think they're pretty good. So I think he himself is being underrated. Corey, yes or way no? Way to stick to one point there the whole way through. No, Corey's, Corey had things to say, and he used the over-under in the no, lightning round, really as good. he always does, impressive. to just say what he needs no, I've to. I've learned a lot. He actually remembered, yeah. he remembered his answer, Carter, which was nice. He remembered his yeah, starting point, yeah, which was good. excellent. I've taken a lot. I've learned a lot from his, his answer. Thank Corey, you. Corey, yes or no? Should the liberals run ads against Pierre this month? Yeah, absolutely. Carter, should define they- him, define him hard, define him fast. Carter, should they spend money? Should they run ads on Pierre this month too early or, or you got to do it? I think you've got to do it. I just think you've got to be very careful when you're doing it. You don't want to jump too far um, and cast him as the devil incarnate. Uh, it's too easy for him to prove that he's not the devil incarnate. 
Carter, maybe. Yeah, I agree. Dial up to devil as you get closer to an election. And this is not about shock. This is about base facts that you can lay at people's feet about who Pierre Poliev is. Carter, it's, you're going to love this. It's time for you to make a prediction, my good friend. Predict for me this. I'm so good at them. <laughs> Predict for me this. Does Pierre Polyev yeah. endorse Daniel Smith before October the 6th? No. No, interesting. Pierre Polyev is about Pierre Polyev. He's not about Daniel. He's uh, selfish and this is who he is. Interesting, interesting. Anything else you want to add in case we need to clip this uh, later on? No, I think that that will get me into enough hot water in the legal stuff. I'm good. Okay, thank you, Carter. Corey, Pierre Polyev, will he endorse Daniel Smith before October 6th? Well, I keep hearing rumors that he will, and that his last trip to Alberta, there was some suspicion that he might at this point. I think this is a pretty good example of what I was talking about, though, about, you know, check yourself and think about these things in in a way that's not just about the grandness of Pierre Polyev and your ability to make things happen, mm. but what you're actually trying to do. Because, boy, it does not take a lot of imagination to to have Danielle Smith win the Alberta Sovereignty Act be received both here in Alberta and more importantly, Canada-wide as you know this separatist manifesto from a candidate that Pierre Polyev endorsed and have that as somewhat disqualified mm-hmm. you know, for many people across the country. So I just don't know what the upside is for you. You can say things like, I'm willing to work with anybody. There's some legitimate grievances Daniel Smith's talking about, but you were trying to be the prime minister. And just think about being the prime minister. Like, just imagine, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this. I've seen this on Twitter a few times. Imagine the Alberta Sovereignty Act was a thing and Pierre Polyev was prime minister, but Rachel Notley was premier. Would you like, is that, does that seem okay to you? Like, Mm. you've got to be thinking about the country as a whole if that's the job you're going for. Corey, I'm going to start this final one with you. A very simple yes or no question. As of today, oh, good. As we I like these ones. Sunday, September 11th, is Pierre Polyev the front runner for the next federal election? Yes. Qualify it. Add, add, add a little bit more meat to the well, bone. You literally said yes or no. You said, yeah. We're following the rules for once. You were We're so following emphatic. the rules, Zane. And he was yeah. so emphatic that I, I, need you, I need you to justify it. Lay it on me. Why? Because of, I mean, how many times am I going to say the same thing? Hired liberal government. The conservatives were already in a position to win the popular vote. He's got his party behind him. People don't care about disqualification anymore. He's a great communicator. Great on message, I would say. Okay, communicator. Not going to back away from that. Yeah, he's, he, uh, Corey still has some whiplash from the woodworking video. Carter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Pierre Polyev. Is he the yeah. front runner for the next election? Absolutely. Absolutely. He he can win the next election. Uh, you know, right now, I'd say relatively easily um, if an election were held today. Now, of course, an election isn't held today. An election is held yep. uh, in three and a half years, but or maybe three years or something like it's that. Who can now. remember? Um, but I still think that three years from now, he's still the front runner. Keep in mind, the conservatives have won more votes than the liberals uh, for the last two elections and uh, the liberals got more seats, but you know, we, we did the, the rescue uh, of the liberal party podcast in 2015. They weren't going anywhere. And um, get out of here. It wasn't because of us, but we did that podcast, right? We were pointing out that they were in third place at that particular moment that, that Mulcair 
was more likely to win at that time. And the, the liberals came back. They aren't this juggernaut that just wins forever. That's not who they are. And if they think like that, they're going to lose. And well, right now, my fear is they're going to lose. The thing about when we've talked about this, the liberals, the last two elections have had a very efficient vote and efficient votes look great as they did in the last two federal elections mm -hmm. until they don't, as they did for the liberals in the last Ontario election. Right. You spread yourself pretty far. You're only winning by a few votes when you shave a thousand votes off across the board. I'll see you later. All of a sudden you're looking at Ignatieff numbers, Dion numbers. It drops very quickly in those scenarios. We're going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 1001 of The Strategist. My name is Zane Veldry. With me, as always, Stephen Carter, Corey Hogan, and we'll see you next time. And they continue to bounce from one embarrassing situation to the other. I'll tell you something, though, Carter. Yeah. If I was the Green Party president, I'd just fucking quit. I wouldn't stick around. I wouldn't put up with this nonsense. They can't quit. You can't give up on a party like the Green Party. They've got sitting MPs. Well, they can't stay. They can't stay. I mean, the dream is dead. Oh, I can't even believe it because the Green Party, it, it should be the most relevant party in politics today. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. Zane, it's, it's a really unfair question. The question isn't, you know, how much or anything along those lines. I mean, I think the question is how close can Pierre Polyev get to 69? Because, you know, he's all, he's been looking for a 69 since he was in high school. This is a, this is a real, this is a real no, thing. Listen, listen, funny line, but Polyev cannot get 69%. Sheree would have to get 15, 16% for that to happen. And that would be so fucking embarrassing. It's hard for my brain to process could you, it. Could you even imagine if you actually put down Sheree 15% in your office pool? Like you'd look like a fucking idiot. It's a good point. But she's not going to live forever. She's 96 years old. For all we know, this time next week, we will be talking about King Charles III. No, it's going to be King George VI, I thought. Well, that's a... Didn't he say at no one way point he was going to be... For sure. He says that while his mom is alive. But the minute she's gone, he's going to go with Charles. You know he's going to go with Charles. I mean, there's precedent. I mean, Elizabeth kept hers, right? So, that's but I mean, I don't like talking this way about the Queen, frankly. It makes me nervous.